This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Samsung, provider of defense-grade mobile security for an open world. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, October 2nd, at a critical moment for cyber risk in the United States, the Washington Post brought together government leaders, security experts, and advocates to discuss emerging threats across the cybersecurity landscape. Experts at the forefront of cyber threat detection and prevention also offered a global view of cyber dangers facing the U.S., including foreign interference in American elections, infrastructure vulnerability, intellectual property theft, and targeted misinformation. In this segment, experts look at the threats posed by foreign governments and adversaries around the world and discuss what the U.S. is doing to protect critical infrastructure, prevent intellectual property theft, and secure military networks. Let's listen. Well, thank you. Uh, Good morning, everyone. I'm Ellen Nakashima. I'm a national security reporter here at the Washington Post. And I am joined by a stellar panel of cybersecurity experts and scholars who are going to discuss with us here today the most pressing threats to the United States posed by our top nation state adversaries in cyberspace, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. Starting from my left, we have Dmitry Alperovich, co-founder and chief technology officer of the cyber firm CrowdStrike, and an expert on cyber threats posed by all four adversaries. Next to Dmitry is Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2009 to 2012, where she advised the Defense Secretary in National Security and Defense Policy. And next to Michelle is Kareem Sajadpour, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and known as the smartest man in Washington on Iran. (laughs) And James Mulvenon, uh, the vice president of the intelligence division at Defense Group Inc. and a specialist in the the Chinese military and influence operations. During the discussion, if you have questions for our panelists, please be sure to tweet them to hashtag post live. That's hashtag post live. And I'm just going to dive in here because we don't have a lot of time. I wanted to start with uh, you, James, and China. Last week, the president warned that China was seeking to meddle in the U.S. elections. Do you see any evidence of that? Um, what, what Washington is confronting is something that they had not really paid a lot of attention to for a long time, uh, which is that China has a global influence operations uh, campaign of fairly large scale under under its United Front work department. Uh, and it had gone largely unnoticed uh, until people started picking away at it. Um, but the, there's a key difference in the sense that they're more focused on making sure that there's a positive portrayal of China um, and to downplay criticism of China rather than, uh, in the Russian case, to seek to disrupt our democratic processes and undermine the legitimacy of of our system. And and Uh, real quickly for the audience, the United Front Work Department is? So the United Front Work Department is a a very large organization within the Chinese Communist Party that is dedicated uh, to the propaganda and covert influence campaigns about the portrayal of China abroad um, to actually further China's national interests. 
um, and it has a, you know, there are now a lot of reports in Australia and New Zealand uh, about the activities of this organization, and now we are taking a very long look at it in the United States. But are you seeing anything that looks to be in, in the way of, of interfering in or trying to influence uh, either the uh, can political campaigns or meddling in infrastructure, anything related to the midterms? Well, I think we're, gonna, we're, we're potentially going to find out some interesting things in Vice President Pence's uh, speech tomorrow. Um, uh, where there's a promise that they're going to reveal some of the some of the digging they've been doing on this, um, uh, there is some discussion, for instance, about uh, Chinese um, campaign finance issues at, at the local and state and, and Senate level, um, and I think we're going to need to dig deeper on that because I personally have not seen any concrete evidence uh, of the same level of meddling, mm -hmm. uh, particularly directed towards the midterms. Uh, Dimitri, or would you like to also weigh in? You've also studied China and uh, cyber. Yeah, so uh, in 2015, the Obama administration struck an agreement with China to stop commercial espionage uh, for the purposes of, of um, helping uh, Chinese private and state-owned enterprises. Uh, uh, industries and uh, for a little bit after afterwards we actually saw a dramatic decline in Chinese intrusion activity in the United States there was still activity focused on the national security sort of traditional espionage uh, but um, intrusions into private industry have dropped by over 90 percent um, based on our uh, numbers however I can tell you that unfortunately now the Chinese are back and uh, we're seeing a huge pickup in activity uh, over the course of the last year and a half. And uh, nowadays, they are the most predominant threat actor that we're seeing breaking into institutions all over this country and Western Europe. And are you seeing anything aimed at election infrastructure at all? We're not seeing much on elections, but every sector of the economy is getting infiltrated and IP has been stolen just like it was prior to the agreement. Okay, and are we seeing any activity by China in social media, uh, sort of taking a page from what uh, China, Russia did in 2016? No, I mean, it's, it's, it again is very oriented on creating a positive image. Um, the Chinese government in particular has been really put on their, on their back heels um, by the uh, Trump administration trade policies. Um, it has dramatically undermined the narrative that Xi Jinping had been pushing, that this was China's century, the China dream. Um, they're still recoiling a bit from, uh, from all of this external pressure um, and trying to figure out how best to respond. And their natural reaction is, let's mobilize our friends um, that we've built all of these relationships with over the years. And that has mainly been the focus of the information operations messaging. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Michelle, w which is the bigger threat then to the United States today? Do you think is it China or is it Russia? I think they're both quite substantial but different in character. Mm -hmm. um, as has been described, China so far has been going primarily after both intelligence targets and also um, the, steal the theft of intellectual property that gives them economic advantage. Um, Russia has been, this has been a bit more of a, a KGB type of approach using the old uh, Putin's old playbook, which is really as part, cyber as part of a larger set of influence operations, trying to undermine democracy as an alternative to uh, authoritarianism uh, by uh, getting inside our system and creating chaos and disruption and doubt. And so the social media campaign, the hacking of, camp of elections, um, the, um, all of this is really trying to undermine Americans' faith in democracy and to make us 
America and our system look to the world very messy, very polarized, very dysfunctional, um, which only helps uh, sort of Putin. Um, in addition, he has traditional intelligence uh, missions that he, he uses cyber for, um, such as collecting um, on military targets, trying to penetrate key parts of the critical infrastructure that on which the military would rely mm -hmm. to actually project power in a crisis and so forth. So I would say it's, you know, they're both very substantial and they both need our attention, mm -hmm. but they're somewhat different in their focus, at least right now. What, what do you think, Dimitri? Yeah, I agree with Michelle that um, they have different priorities and um, certainly in the long term, probably in uh, not just in cyber, but in, in geopolitics, China is a long-term threat. It's a much more powerful country. The military is uh, growing in capabilities, particularly regionally, and um, we should be concerned about them in the long term. In the short term, certainly Russia can cause us a lot of trouble, and uh, they're taking full advantage of that. Right. So short term, uh, Russia's probably a little more um, immediate, but in the long term, when we look at the strategic landscape, China is the greater threat. Okay. I think so. Um, so, so Michelle, you, you pointed out that you know Russia uh, carried off the most brazen information operations uh, attacks on the U.S. Uh, in, in modern history in 2016. Both the Obama and Trump administrations imposed a series of measures to punish and deter uh, Moscow. Have any of those measures had any real impact in changing Putin's behavior, in changing Russia's behavior? Any um, that you've seen from both the Trump and the... Yeah. Not, not so far. Um, I think we, in order to really deter Putin, several things have to happen, and I don't think these have happened yet. A very clear declaratory policy that draws some lines and says we will take certain types of attack as an attack on our vital interests, on our democracy, and you can expect substantial costs or consequences as a result. So we have to communicate kind of where we, what we hold dear, um, and, and be clear that we will impose costs, not necessarily exclusively in the cyber domain, but using all the instruments of our national power. That's thing one. And then thing two is then we have to actually respond um, in ways that are um, effective, uh, but not escalatory. And that's the that is the real challenge. I do think this administration, at least in its documents, it's published a new national cyber strategy and a new defense strategy. And it does have some new concepts, um, like defending forward, which is authorizing the Defense Department, for example, to disrupt or de um, defeat, halt cyber attacks at their source, um, which is a new posture. The Congress, in the recent Defense Authorization Act, gave the department the authorities, the legal authorities, to actually do that. Uh, what we don't know yet is, like, how is that actually going to work in practice? Who, what level of decision maker actually authorizes that, given the risk of blowback or retaliation or escalation? How do you get an integrated approach and a broad strategy across the whole of government, you know, if, there, if this is just DOD acting alone? So there are a lot of unanswered questions. But at least in their documents and in the public statements from people like National Security Advisor Bolton, they intend to take a more aggressive posture to try to create some measure of deterrence. Let me just I'll be, ask you a question to get clarity on this. So until this strategy, the DOD didn't have the authority to halt, uh, Cyber Command didn't have the authority to halt uh, 
attacks at their source? It was focused, uh, previously it was focused on defending the dot mill, the military's own networks, mm -hmm. and then working with the private sector to improve their capacity to defend um, dot com. And now? And now there is authorization anyway to both um, defend forward, which is to do offensive cyber that disrupts attacks at their source, and also asks DOD to be prepared to actually help defend key parts of critical infrastructure. Again, particularly those elements like the electrical grid and transportation that are most essential to being able to mobilize and use uh, our military forces in a crisis. Let me open this up to the full panel. Anyone can answer this. Um, if you were the Secretary of Defense, or you, Michelle, or anyone else, uh, under this new strategy and under a new executive order, that gives the Secretary of Defense more latitude or authority to undertake offensive actions below the use of force uh, against foreign adversaries. What measures would you direct Cyber Command to take to deter Russia right now in its aggressive malign actions against the U.S.? Does anyone want to take a stab at that? Well, I, I think first you need to frame it properly and you need to say that we are in a deep deterrence hole right now mm -hmm. with respect to both Russia and China. Um, over the last 20 years, there have been a series of escalating attacks by both actors um, that have undermined U.S. interests. Um, and from the perspective of both Russia and China, they have not found our pain point yet. Um, uh, and we, we, for a long time, we- They keep looking. They keep looking. <laughs> they, keep, right. they keep nudging. Um, uh, and for a long time, they looked at our declaratory policy, as Michelle mentioned, and the declaratory policy was, we will only respond if it results in the loss of human life. Well, there's a heck of a lot of terrible, damaging things you can do to U.S. national interests short of actually killing someone. Um, and so that really didn't become a good operative definition for where our declaratory doesn't it also, policy should Doesn't be. our declaratory policy also include damage or destruction? Yeah, well, it, it could include damage or destruction that is equivalent to, Lost. you know, nuclear no. attack or, or something like that. But the, the, my bottom line is, mm -hmm. is that when you're in a deterrence hole, the first thing you need to do is stop digging. Uh, and the second thing you need to do um, is recognize that a single action is not going to be sufficient to restore deterrence stability to that domain, that you have to have a consistent series of response actions, again, much more focused on deterrence through punishment than denial because you can't deny the target set in cyber. Uh, it's just too much of it. It's connected to everything. So it has to be deterrence through punishment, and you have to be consistent. And my view is we're going to have to go through a series of Berlin airlifts and Cuban missile crises before either Moscow or Beijing believes that we've actually re you know, returned ourselves to mm -hmm. a level of deterrence stability. Well, so Michelle said, talked about a declaratory policy. Does that mean we should have an explicit series of red lines, for instance, with respect to Russia? If you... Uh, hack into voting systems or machines, we will then take, you know, do X or take some sort of punishment, responsive action. How, how explicit should we be and how, um, you know, where should you draw the lines for, to, to, that, that would require a forceful response, be they sanctions uh, or, or other actions? My own view is that we should be um, very explicit, not necessarily, you have to think about what you want to do publicly versus what you want to mm -hmm. convey very clearly and privately, but what, what kinds of attacks we consider 
um, beyond the normal sort of intelligence, you know, reconnoitering that countries do to one another, and what we consider to be an, an actual attack, and how seriously we will take this. I don't think we want to be exactly, ex totally explicit about what exactly we would do in response. I think we want to suggest uh, certain levels of consequence, but I think we need the freedom to tailor responses in a given situation. I also think it's worth thinking about what, what may work for deterrence with Putin in Russia may be different than what right. would work with China or with Iran or North Korea because you know deterrence is about getting at what different leaders and hold dear. And the answer to that question is, has to be tailored to the specific adversary. So can we do a quick uh, lightning round on what pain points you might press for, for Russia, Iran, North Korea, and China? You want to mm -hmm. start with? James? Uh, well, so as Dimitri mentioned, the executive order that actually called for cyber sanctions against senior Chinese um, state-owned enterprise officials if they materially benefited from Chinese state cyber espionage. Um, there's a lot of lessons to be drawn there, which is, you know, money talks. Um, and those individuals, unlike the very low-level operators that the Justice Department had indicted a number of years earlier, those people were powerful. Uh, they were connected directly to the leadership in Beijing. Uh, and I would argue that that executive order and the threat of real sanctions, um, and not just because they wouldn't be able to go to Davos or pay their daughter's Harvard tuition out of their ill-gotten gains, uh, but also because it just was a serious blow to very senior people who were really more Communist Party apparatchiks than, than commercial executives, um, immediately got to the Chinese to the table. And, and yeah. you know, Meng Jianzhou and, and other senior people came here and said, we're ready to negotiate. What do we need to do to deal with this? Um, and I think the same would be true. I think we can walk it across um, in terms of actually hitting the financial pain points of central leaders who are often themselves kleptocrats and have amassed large fortunes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the same economic sanctions on Russia haven't really, as you noted, moved to change their behavior. Right. So, and they're much more willing right. to accept a level of pain. So what yeah, would you no, do? I think for Putin, there are two key issues. One is his getting at his own legitimacy or perceptions of his legitimacy with his population. And we know um, that there's ample evidence that is known in the intelligence community about Putin's own corruption and also a number of uh, topics on which he clearly lies to his own people. So the whole question of outing Putin on some of these issues. And then I think the other thing is he's extremely reliant on the oligarchs around him for financial and political support. And again, creating some difficulties and pain for them to get them to lobby him to tone it down. Um, I think those are the kinds of area, uh, levers we need to explore more fully in addition to things like sanctions and diplomatic repercussions. What about you, Dimitri, on Russia? You're, you've thought a lot about uh... Well, I do think that at some point we should be thinking about if you can't beat them um, at this game, can you join them? And should we be engaged in our own information operations? Mm. Do some of the things that Michelle is talking about uh, to make it clear that you can play this game. Let's be clear, when you look at the capabilities of our cyber command, they're head and shoulders above everyone else, including Russia. So can we unleash some of those capabilities of cyber command, NSA, and other intelligence agencies to actually do more in this space and actually have effects beyond just sort of the kinetic focus that they traditionally um, try to think about of can we disable this node or um, have, um, uh, you know, take down this integrated air defense system, but can you actually do information operations? What do you mean by that? Deception, disinformation, or? All of the above, right, potentially. Uh, we should be thinking about 
how do we use all toolkits of our power, including cyber, to achieve our effects? I, I would add a slight footnote. I actually think what is most uh, terrifying for Vladimir Putin is, is truth, <laughs> is accurate information. Right. And rather than you know, thinking up a lot of deception measures, which is, you know, has, I think, issues in, in terms of how our system works and our values and so forth, I think it's more about outing him and those around him about the truth of their ill-gotten gains, their actions, their corruption, their involvement in all kinds of illicit activities. Um, and so forth, and that. So I would start by just sort of making the truth known and using that mm -hmm. as an information operation. Um, but you know, before I'd go down the the road that you're talking about. But point taken. Well, if you look yeah. at what they did in 2016, a lot of what they put out was actually truthful as well, mm. right? So uh, it doesn't have to be all deception. Yeah. yeah. Kareem, what about Iran? Uh, what you know, to the extent that we want to. Uh, make Iran behave or change its behavior in malicious actions in cyberspace, what do you think their pressure or pain points would be? And, and then also talk, a little, we can talk a little bit more about what you think they are doing now, or will they do now that the U.S. has pulled out of the Iran sure. nuclear <clears throat> It's a good question. Just for broader context, mm -hmm. Iran is a third-tier cyber power with mm -hmm. China, Russia, the United States being first-tier powers, European countries being second-tier powers. Iran is really a third-tier cyber power. But what we've learned is that third-tier cyber powers can have a huge impact on fifth-tier powers like Saudi Arabia. Iran's attack on Saudi Aramco was perhaps one of the costliest cyber attacks in history. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, the most damaging cyber attacks don't necessarily need to be that sophisticated, like Russia's attack on the DNC proves. So Iran uh, is a very motivated actor, and it, and it, and it can inflict a lot of damage. Um, what Michelle just said about Russia, I think, also applies to Iran in that I've always thought one of the best things that the U.S. government can do in its Iran policy is simply reveal to the public, especially to the Iranian public, how much Iran is spending on Shiite militias, on Hezbollah, on Bashar Assad in Syria, Shia militias in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen, because this is at a time of enormous economic duress in Iran. Iranians, among the slogans people have been chanting when they take to the streets is forget about Syria, think about us. Mm. So I think to the extent you can just reveal, make public what Iran has been doing in the region, what it's been spending in the region, um, that would actually be very impactful. Mm -hmm. And, and by the way, Ellen, having sat in some of the same policy and legal kinds of discussions internally that Michelle sat through, um, there's a tremendous blockage within the U.S. government system about telling lies abroad. Mm -hmm. um, even though Congress has modified the laws that govern that to make it easier, um, we could actually rely on this and we could say, well, our own system legally prevents us from telling a lot of untruths abroad. Therefore, everything we're saying has to be true. <laughs> there will always be a percentage of the global population that thinks we're you know, pathological liars. But for some people, that will have a circular tightness to it that, that will be appealing. Right. Uh, well, Kareem, recently we saw Iran uh, ran some large information operation on Facebook, and uh, Facebook took down a number of Iranian accounts that seemed to be uh, promoting Iran's uh, policy goals. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Was, was Iran dipping its toe into the waters of social media manipulation? Uh, how does that fit into Iran's larger use of influence operations? Should we be worried about it at all or not? So Iran operates in the cyber world the same way they do in the physical world, which is via proxy. You know, they, they have their, their regional proxies. Um, they like to try to maintain plausible deniability. And they like 
operations which are potentially very high impact and low cost, and cyber checks all of those boxes for them. They have plausible deniability. Um, the folks who are their kind of cyber mercenaries aren't necessarily, you know, they, they work perhaps under the umbrella of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, but in many cases they are private citizens who are not um, card-carrying believers of the Iranian Revolution. And I think disinformation campaigns on Facebook, on social media, um, those are fairly cheap uh, and potentially high impact. Um, what we haven't seen is um, attacks on U.S. infrastructure, things that people may have been anticipating in the aftermath of uh, the Trump administration's pullout from the Iran deal. Um, my sense is that at the moment, Iran is trying to project this notion that they are the responsible actor and uh, Trump's United States is, is the rogue actor. Iran has maintained uh, its commitment to the nuclear deal. Um, this is a temporary phase, I would argue. It's not going to be like this forever. Another kind of notable statistic about this was over the last five, six years, um, there were hundreds of uh, incidents of uh, Iranian harassment of U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf. In the last year, it's almost come down to zero. Mm. Um, they haven't really been testing missiles either. Um, but I expect that as things begin to escalate in the coming year between the U.S. and Iran, the cyber attacks will probably also increase. What about North Korea, Dimitri, uh, with, with denuclearization talks going on now beyond, between Pyongyang and Washington? Uh, do you think we'll similarly see a, a ratcheting down of its malicious activities against the U.S.? Or? Well, there, there are a couple of things that are very interesting about North Korea. One, I would actually argue that they're one of the most innovative cyber powers. So when you look at sort of history, um, they were one of the first nation states to actually use destructive attacks at scale uh, back in 2009 against South Korean infrastructure and then many other attacks that followed on wave after wave. Um, and really, they've, they've perfected the use of South Korea essentially as a testing ground for um, their cyber weapons and a, and a free fire range, if you will. Um, they, they also were the, one of the first ones to use influence operations um, against Sony. Um, and I would argue that the U.S. government at the time really underestimated the power of leaking of emails. They focused very much on the destruction of the network and not the fact that employees' data and, and emails were leaked out um, and terrorized um, the Sony employee base. Um, and you could argue it's been a blueprint for some of the other um, doxing operations we've seen from other nation states afterwards. Um, and of course, they engaged in um, uh, traditional cybercrime operations, both breaking into banks and cryptocurrency exchanges in order to help fund their regime. So they're on the forefront of innovation in many of these areas, not necessarily technical uh, capabilities, but uh, in terms of how you use cyber to achieve national goals. Mm -hmm. But one of the mo more interesting things is that we actually have had deterrence, effective deterrence of North Korea so far um, in terms of targeting the U.S., with Sony being the, the one exception. They have not targeted the U.S. Um, WannaCry was a kind of global attack that uh, actually did not even have a much impact here in the United States, uh, mostly in Europe um, and Russia, um, interestingly enough. But with um, regards to direct attacks on our infrastructure, even though they have the capabilities and they've demonstrated many times over in South Korea, they have not done it against Why not? us. Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that um, they uh, have felt, um, at least until recently, that. Um, there was a possibility of kinetic retaliation against them, and, and they did not want to um, overtly attack the United States. In fact, even if you look at 
their activities in the last couple of decades in the kinetic space. Yes, they've, they've shot South Korean islands, they've killed some South, South Koreans. They have never done that against the U.S. military force there. So they're clearly um, afraid of us at the moment, at least. We'll see how things progress. But in terms of their activity now, mm -hmm. what we're seeing is actually ramping up of intrusion activity related to traditional espionage. They're targeting the South Koreans, they're tr targeting policy people working on negotiations, just like any nation state would, in order to give, give them a, um, a, a better hand uh, and try to understand what the other side is thinking. We're not seeing them at the moment engage in any destructive attacks, um, and uh, we'll see how long it holds, but they're certainly on a charm offensive right now. Kareem, do you see any evidence that Iran and North Korea are working together on cyber attacks or cyber operations? You know, I've often found in researching this stuff that those who know don't talk and those who talk don't know. So I suspect <laughs> there is collaboration between Iran and North Korea and Russia, but they don't do these things in an open light, and so it's very difficult to, to prove. Um, but I suspect they certainly have, have learned from one another and shared information with one another. But by contrast, um, one of the most prominent uh, Iranian hackers who was um, doing research on attacking critical infrastructure uh, was a guest scholar at Tsinghua University, China's MIT, for two years, uh, learning about um, critical infrastructure and, uh, and embedded control systems. Uh, that's not to, that's not a level of state-to-state -state cooperation, but uh, uh, but certainly was a, was an interesting phenomenon to watch. So, Dimitri, in general, how big a threat are Iran and North Korea? If we have uh, of China and Russia at the top, and which, which one would you say is next? Yeah, the way I would rank them is certainly you have Russia as the number one cyber power um, out of those four um, from a technical capabilities perspective. China close behind. Um, then a little further down, North Korea and then Iran. Uh, but Iran is trying to catch up very rapidly to the others. And, and North Korea, I would say, is um, also improving dramatically and is certainly trying to reach China's capabilities from a technical perspective. Okay. Um, like half a minute we have left. Uh, I, I guess I wanted to just sort of ask uh, any of the panelists here, the, the White House just announced a cyber strategy uh, that you may have heard about or read about and wondered whether you thought that would be an effective tool to counter these, uh, you know, top four malicious cyber actors. And, uh, and if I, I think one of the most important things in that strategy was uh, a declaratory policy that we will do attribution alongside with allies and we will punish threat actors and we will do so routinely. I think that's a very welcome change where for the last 20, 30 years the U.S. intelligence community have always often known who the threat actors were but rarely talked about it publicly and almost never engaged in actual punishment efforts against the threat actors. So that change in policy is very much welcome. Mm -hmm. the, the parts of the strategy that I think are really important but don't get as much attention as deterrence and declaratory policy and operations are building international coalitions of like-minded states mm. to share information, tools, approaches, to bolster deterrence as a coalition, um, really developing our private sector partnerships, particularly private sector companies that operate and own most of our critical infrastructure. Those, you know, we know it's important, but we haven't cracked the code on, on doing that well, in my view. And then finally, with cyber workforce development, we have a, a shortage of people in this country, both private sector and definitely in the public sector, who are really expert and can, can, can take these challenges on. We need to fundamentally think about how do we recruit those people, how do we develop them, how do we incentivize them to stay, um, how do we you know, create a highway of people going back and forth between Silicon Valley, say, and, 
and, and the government, um, and really focus on the human capital dimensions, which aren't as you know, flashy as, as some of the things we've been talking about here, but will be really essential to our success. Well, thank you very much. That concludes our discussion this morning. I'd like to thank uh, Dimitri and Michelle, Kareem, and James for being with us. And uh, now my colleague, Kat Sukruski, will take the stage for the next segment. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. Dot com.